This is the Investing in Florida Tech Podcast, hosted by Florida Funders Managing Partner, Tom Wallace. Hello, my name is Tom Wallace, and I'm the Managing Partner of Florida Funders, and welcome to our video podcast series. I'm really excited to have Stuart Bertrand with me here today. I'll introduce him in a minute, but real quickly, Florida Funders, we're a hybrid between a venture capital fund and a crowdfunding site, and we focus on funding early stage technology companies in Florida. We've been doing this for the last three years. Uh, we funded 22 companies so far, invested about $12 million and done, I think, 10 follow-ons. So we about 32 transactions. We focus on companies that mostly SaaS software infrastructure, and we're diversifying out from that a bit. So one of the things we try to do is help our investors learn from other investors, best practices, what they Learn from some of the best. So Stuart's been a longtime friend, known him many years, and a longtime investor. I'm excited to have him here. So Stuart, tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, Tom. My background, I'm a native of Tampa. I uh, grew up here. and uh, Where'd start, you go to college? I, I went to the University of Virginia. UVA, that's yeah, right. Yeah, UVA. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's quite a few of us here in Tampa. They call us the UVA Mafia. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but uh, a great group of folks. And... Uh, Started my career in Atlanta with a real estate developer, the Portman Companies up there. It was a great experience. I went to the MBA program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, shortly after that, ended up back here in Tampa. I guess uh, what brought me here would be uh, having the good fortune to be part of a technology startup back in the early internet area. I remember uh, that era. A company called Tradex Technologies, yeah. and uh, that was part of my longtime partnership with the Murray family, with Jack Murray and Mike Murray. Yeah, uh, we're partners today. We operate as Murray Bertrand, and uh, we've been making investments across venture capital, private equity, and real estate for about twenty-five years now. Well, Tradex was, as I recall, quite a quite a successful exit. Tell, tell our listeners about that. It, it was quite a success. We uh, It's pretty amazing, really, when you look back at it. Um, in 1994, I met Daniel Agater, the founder, mm -hmm. through my partner, Jack Murray. He introduced us. And uh, Daniel uh, was operating a distribution business. I think it actually still operates today. He was serving customers in uh, Switzerland and Austria, where he had grown up and where his family was. And he had recognized that the internet would dramatically change business immediately. Which he puts him ahead of his time. I know it's easy to think back, look back and say it, it was obvious, but it wasn't so obvious at the time. No, not at all. He was, he was absolutely ahead of his time, great visionary and a great entrepreneur, a guy with a great bias for action. And when he saw this, he, uh, he took action pretty much immediately. And ha he had the good fortune of uh, finding, meeting, hiring Jared Rodriguez. And I think you know Jared. Know Jared. He's a great, Very sharp. Great sharp CTO, guy. great software engineer, software architect and engineer. Has gone on to be uh, have, have success with some other companies here in Tampa. Uh, so the two of them were already together and they were building what became a platform for trade, a platform for business-to-business -business transactions. That's the name, right? Tradex? That's the name, Tradex. They were looking for some capital and looking for someone who could uh, take on sales and 
kind of run the the process of raising capital and just helping grow the company. And so that's how we got together. It was fantastic. And what year did you guys exit that? We exited in March of 2000. And sold to Ariba? We sold to Ariba, uh, which is now part of SAP. And was it $2 billion or I, I Approximately $2 billion wow. is what the valuation what a, what a was success. at the time. Yeah. So is that how you first, well, I was going to ask, how, how, when and how did you start angel investing? Well, I would count Tradex as an angel investment because I wrote a check before I received a check. Uh, and that <laughs> okay. includes paychecks. Well, that's not um, unusual yeah. <laughs> where angels invest in it, it's not typical, but yeah. it, it does yeah. happen. No, and that's kind of our track record. Uh, we, years ago, were much more uh, entrepreneurs than investors. We we weren't afraid to risk some capital, but we didn't have a whole lot of capital to risk. So there was a lot of sweat equity involved in not only at Tradex, but in other companies that we started and grew. We had made a few angel investments prior to that. Oh, wow. And, I didn't uh, realize that. How did they work out? Uh, won some, lost some. Uh, made a little money, lost a little money, but tremendous experience. You know, I've been asked about the best investments I've made. And, you know, this first couple of investments, especially where you lose some money, that's great experience. <laughs> you learn, we learn, you learn a lot a from lot. our failures, you learn right? A lot. And then when you Absolutely. go on and lose uh, larger sums, that's great experience too. <laughs> uh, the more the the more painful they are, the better the lesson. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and sometimes you can make a lot of money in a short period of time with an investment, and it can be kind of the reverse. You know, it can it, you you can get in a state where you think you know what you're doing, and maybe you don't quite know what you're doing yet. So when you're looking at an investment, what are you looking for? We vo- focus very much on people. For us, it's all about the entrepreneur. And what are you looking for in that entrepreneur? We're looking for somebody who has. Uh, a clear vision. We're looking for somebody who's focused on solving problems, problems for their customer, or their target pro- customer, but also for all the other constituents. You know, if you're going to have investors, we want to be in business with somebody who understands what investors expect and what they need. You want to be in business with somebody who understands what employees need. Mm-hmm. There's just all sorts of elements. How do you know that when you're your first meeting and interviewing and meeting with these investors or these founders and they're trying to raise money. How do you know that yeah. they are going to take care of their employees and are going to build the right culture yeah. and, yeah. and uh, are going to not just take your money and then yeah. <laughs> not do a very good job of communicating with you? Would you be surprised that happens more than you realize yeah. probably? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I think the quick answer is it takes some time. It's really hard to figure that out in the first meeting. I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll have an initial meeting and have a very good feeling, you know, very good initial experience. Sometimes you're able to kind of rule out an investment in that first meeting, kind of based on that assessment of, Mm -hmm. you know, who the person is. And it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just might, it may just mean that you can tell it's not going to be a fit, Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, uh, you know, styles are different, approaches are different. It it just might not be a good fit for us. And we're always... uh, happy to try to help somebody find whatever they're looking for, right? Whether, so if you can't, if they're not a fit for you, you might be able to send them to oh, somebody yeah, else, yeah, Florida sure. funders maybe, or absolutely, you know, that they absolutely. might be a better fit for. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. What we like to say at Florida funders is we want to add value to every company we talk to, whether we end up investing in it or not. Maybe it's a piece of advice, try this, try that. Have you thought about this? I agree. So we, we, we believe that. Mm-hmm. So is there a certain 
check size you like to write or deal size and certain number of deals you like to do, or do you don't look at it that way? We're a little bit different. You know, we primarily what we're doing is investing our own capital, you know, over the course of a few decades now of building up some capital, right? So we take a different approach. We're not a fund, so we don't have any time constraints in terms of uh, delivering a return to limited partners, mm-hmm. to our investors. Typically, we're thinking longer term. We we really like to be in business for a longer term than I think uh, the typical early stage investor would be. Yeah. And for, for our audience, if you're not familiar with funds, the average venture capital private equity fund, they've got to return the money to their shareholders. It's not a very liquid investment for their shareholders, but there's some lifetime. It's usually less than 10 years, somewhere in that five to 10 year period that they plan on investing that money, having exits and redistributing all the money that they've invested. Yeah. So going back to your question, check size, we'll typically look at situations where the capital requirement is in the, say, two to five million dollar range. It doesn't mean that we're going to provide all of that capital. It just means we know that we can put that amount of capital together if we're excited about the investment and and want to move forward with the investment. Can you tell us as there, you know, we're talking about it's a people business and the founders, uh, a founder that you really like and that maybe a story of somebody you invested in, you liked them right from the beginning and he or she and mm-hmm. any anything come to mind there? Oh, yeah. I mean, one great thing about this part of the capital markets is just the experience that you get to have with people. I mean, yeah. it could be the best part of the experience yeah. you know, is to get to know some people who Again, who yeah, have people vision, are passionate that want to change the and, world and create a company exactly. and have so much energy and great talent. leaders, yeah, great leaders, yeah. I gotta say, my two partners, the Murray brothers, Jack and Mike, have each started companies and been very successful. Their father, Jack Murray Jr., is kind of a legendary, yeah, he's very well known here, here in the area. And so, th- these are three people that I admire very much. and just very grateful for the partnership that I have with them. We talked about Daniel. You knew right from the beginning? I knew this guy was special. It took a while to get to know one another. But uh, if you look back at the Tampa Bay area in the last 25 years, somebody that you would have bet on, I mean, he's, he's got to be, you know, in the top five 1%. or 10 people <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that definitely. you could have picked. So how we got together, how we got to know each other, you know, who knows all the different circumstances that brought that about. But I'm, again, very grateful mm-hmm. that we did. We have a great friendship. He just invited us to his 50th birthday party back yeah. in Switzerland, where he lives again with his family uh, this That's summer. Great. So maybe we'll meet up and have a good time with them. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. How about on the opposite side? Are there any immediate red flags when you're looking at a, a company and an a founder's pitching you that if you hear this or you see this, you're just, you're done. What are the red flags you look for? Yeah, of course, you know, in evaluating people, of course, character's just core element that you're looking for, right? And so it's not unheard of to be in a situation, really in any business situation, where somebody's so eager to achieve their goal that they're, uh, they exaggerate, right? A little hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. And, uh it's a it's to, perfectly understandable, sure. but it really fouls up an investment process. If you can't count on the information that you're receiving, it'll really foul up an investment really quickly. And so we like to get 
really real with people as soon as possible. Make them very comfortable to tell us what's not going well. Yeah. Because there's always something that's not going well. Yeah, we see that a lot because mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurs are so excited. Their founders are so excited about their business and they, they have a lot of passion. And it's they all have the hockey stick with the, you know, the, the Salesforce cast. And separating that hyperbole where they're just excited from reality can be challenging and, you know, we see it all the time and yeah. try to really, really um, see, are they just excited and therefore they're, you know, exaggerating a little bit or are they unrealistic? And these numbers yeah. are just, you know, they're just and, make, they're uh, making it know, up as and, they go along. And like a lot of folks, we've had experience with folks who ended up being dishonest, yeah. you know, that'll really foul up an investment. Yeah, that's the last person <laughs> you want to be in business with, yeah. last person you want to invest yeah. in, huh? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. How big is uh, how how important is uh, TAM total total available market to you? When you're looking at investments, does it have to be of a huge market? How do you look at that? Yeah, no, I think it's very important because it it basically the way you determine you know what the potential is for the business that's being built. Right? Uh, generally, I think a billion dollars of total addressable market is a pretty good kind of starting point. Mm-hmm. That's a good uh, market because that means. You know, there should be an opportunity to have a company that would have tens of millions of revenues and perhaps over a hundred million of revenues. And if you're in the very early stage, that ought to be plenty of runway. As the market gets smaller, it's pretty simple math. You know, at some point you realize, you know, it's going to be hard to ever create more than a few million dollars of revenue out of a business, which makes makes it hard for everything to, to work out for all the constituents. Tell us about follow-on rounds. Is anybody that's been doing this for very long, it's very common for the founders mm-hmm. to come back, not be ready for a Series A or an institutional round. They come back to the original investors, yep. typically angels, guys like us, yep. and they want more money. And mm-hmm. how do you look at that? Do you, when do you double down? When do you cut your losses and say, uh, you know? We- yeah, I guess it depends on this on the situation. I, I know a lot of fund investors go into a deal with their first check assuming that they're going to write a second or third check and reserving a certain mm-hmm. amount of money to Very do common. that. And, and I think we've gone through that process ourselves before, maybe not quite as formally, but I think we have you know, at least been mentally ready to uh, write additional checks. Also, uh, and I think you, you know this at Florida Funders, sometimes you know you're not going to be able to write that check because it's the company's going to need so much more capital it's mm-hmm. going to kind of exit your kind of spectrum that you're that sure. you're in in terms of check size so a lot of times it's joining the process of raising the follow on money introducing the company to larger investors that sort of thing and counseling the founder or ceo on the process yeah a good point but what if they're not really ready for the next they're not yep. re- they're not going to get an institutional and you're going to have trouble getting a co-investor they're probably not obviously hitting it out of the park. They're mm-hmm. struggling a little bit. Do you put more money in or do you, how do you look at that? Yeah, another great question. Again, it's got to be case by case. It's a tough call. But I guess the bottom line is sometimes you do have to say, we can't put more money in this company. That might mean starting a process to sell uh, whatever it is you've built. It might be starting a process to liquidate the company and shut it down. Those are tough decisions. They are tough Tough conversations too, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us a story about maybe a big miss or a big failure, something you passed on that you look back on and, or you wish you would have invested in it or one you did and it went south. And yeah. 
we have definitely had some misses, right? We've definitely uh, invested in some businesses that didn't work out. And I think we've, we've missed a few, although probably not as many because our deal flow isn't as large as institutional investors. If you raise a fund and invest other people's money, sure. you really have a an obligation to have really healthy deal flow on the order of hundreds or perhaps a thousand or more looks a year. And we don't, we don't do that. We're a little less formal and we make far fewer investments. Sometimes we don't make a new investment in a year. So I don't think we've, I'm not sure there's a miss that jumps out at me. You know, thinking about the ones that didn't work out, we had a company about 10 years ago was re- really probably more, looking back, probably more of a private equity investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know. A little it, later stage. Well, it, yeah, it, it was not a startup. It was in business and seeking capital to uh, make an acquisition to make itself larger. We made that investment and it was in the, in the uh, security space. And by that, I don't mean data security or anything like that. Cybersecurity, this is just straightforward security of uh, facilities. But there was some potential to apply technology to the business, and and the acquisition was actually under pretty good terms. And I think that was a case where our founder, who's a guy we really like, it wasn't ready to take that on. I think looking back- He didn't have the skill set. He wasn't mature enough as a leader. Yeah, I'm not even sure I would use those particular descriptors, but that he just- it turned out it did, it, that it didn't work out. It turned out that even with some coaching and some involvement from us, it just didn't work out where we all thought it would and wanted mm-hmm. it to. And then uh, we hit the year 2008. You remember then? Oh, yeah. Remember? <laughs> yeah. And, um, that was a rough one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, this company was selling uh, primarily to real estate developers and to banks. Oh gosh! Uh, and so we had kind of a double whammy then, and we yeah. just, we had to make a tough decision, and we uh, sold part of the business and shut the rest of it down. You brought up the word coachability. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at founders, how important is coachability to you? Yeah, it's important, and maybe even uh, what it is is kind of openness to new ideas, openness to support, openness to really just kind of listening to their, again, their constituents, because you become a stakeholder in the business, right? Yeah. Stuart and I are co-investors in a deal together with a a CEO, uh, Jordan. When I listen to you talk about openness and learning, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he seems to be the quintessential example of that to me. Oh, he's a great guy. He's a CEO who kind of passed that assessment process uh, really rapidly. He does understand all his different constituents, and he uh, great communicator. eager to please all of them. And great this, is, this is one that that, yeah. I, that he does really well. He sends out an update to all of us, all mm-hmm. of his investors. He sends an update every yeah. month. Yeah. Every month we get an update. Yeah. Did they hit their numbers? Didn't they? Yeah. It's not always good news either. Yeah, it's yeah. not always good news, but yeah. you always get it. And yes. my experience is that a lot of founders aren't very good at doing that. We yeah. don't hear from them. We're, yeah. you know, we're in, we may even be on the board. So we'll be in a board meeting once a quarter, but yeah. you know, we're, they're not very good communicators and they don't update us nearly as much frequently as we would like. Mm-hmm. And I, I almost think sometimes there's almost a direct relationship between that and return on investment. Although, you know, not always, but yeah, it's not absolute, but it's just, it becomes, if, if there's a problem with communications, if there's a problem with the relationship, basically, Right. 
whether it's coachability or just basic communications and information about the business, if for whatever reason you ever get in that situation, it's a problem. It's not going to help the investment. You know, it's not going to help mm-hmm. things go better. Yep. And so over the years, you know, I've learned, you know, reduce those sorts of problems the best you can. And then you have better prospects for success. It's not going to guarantee success, but it's going to it's going to help you focus on things that add a lot more value. Due diligence. What, what's the most important part of due diligence to, to you? And what do you focus on in the due diligence side? Yeah, to, it, again, you know, case by case. I'd say uh, customer-related due diligence, right? Uh, verifying who the customers are, verifying what their experience has been. That's mm-hmm. that's huge. Agree with that. Yeah. Those customer calls, really yeah. digging in with those co- yeah. early customers. Yeah. Whatever data there is about the business, financial information or other data, that's usually pretty straightforward, but it's really important. You know, you got to yeah. make sure you understand what you're doing or what you're working with, the information that you're working with. I guess other than that, maybe market intelligence. And a lot of times uh, when you start getting excited about a new business, I can, you know, I, I've seen myself get too excited about the opportunity, sure. right? And We've not all become <laughs> critical enough in yeah. assessing what's going on in the market, not becoming skeptical enough about what's going on in the market. I remember, I think, I think it was Andy Grove at Intel wrote a book called uh, Only the Paranoid Survive, mm-hmm. right? So you need to always double check everything, all your assumptions, not only as you make the initial investment, but even ongoing. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think Easier we've all been, said than done. Yeah. We've all been <laughs> guilty of you get too excited and, yeah. you know, and the Angel Capital Association does a pretty good job of publishing some, some data around this. Yeah. And how the hours of due diligence, if you spend more than 20 hours of due diligence on an investment and greater, that your probability of return goes up. And if you mm-hmm. spend less than that, probability goes down. Definitely. Yeah, I can believe it. It makes sense. Well, Stuart, thank you so much. Thank really you, appreciate Tom. it. Great to see you as always and continued success. I'm sure you will be. And really appreciate your time. And to our, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll be doing more of these in the future. And hopefully you'll find them worthwhile and enjoyable if you're interested. Hit us up at floridafunders.com. We have several, we always usually have several companies we're in the process of funding and raising money for that we've done the extension through diligence and uh, negotiate the terms. And it's a pretty simple process. And even if you're not looking to invest today, go out and register on our site, get on our mailing list, and you can start learning about angel investing. And we'd be happy to help you with the journey. Thanks so much. Florida Funders is an early-stage venture capital firm that blends a venture fund and a crowdfunding platform. They are investing in some of the most exciting early-stage technology companies in the state of Florida. 